this is a talk which um, the Bala Sulam gave and Rabbi Boch Ashlag heard it and he wrote it down. I'm looking at the Hebrew and I'll just read the English, okay? Great. He starts off looking at the scripture in Shemot, in Exodus, in the very first chapter, okay? Mm-hmm. And I'll just read out loud. And a new king arose over Egypt who had not known Joseph or who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, here is the children, here is the people of the children of Israel and they are greater and mightier than us. Let us take counsel lest they multiply and it will be that war will happen and then they will add to our enemies and they will fight against us and uh, come up from the land mm-hmm. and they put over them uh, taskmasters in order to afflict them with hard work with with their burdens and he built um now it says in the english i'm if i'm not mistaken cities of store stores yeah, my my language is a little bit different, but in this it says garrison cities. Yeah, garrison cities or store cities. Nobody really knows what type of cities these were for Pharaoh, and they're called Pitom and Ramses. Mm-hmm. Okay? But as he afflicted them, so they multiplied. And they were upset, if you like, because of the children of Israel. Something mm-hmm. like that. Okay, mm-hmm. so Rabbi Ashlag asked the question... What are these Aramis cannot? In English, like these storehouses or garrison cities, nobody really knows quite what they are for Pharaoh, Pitom, and Ramses. And he says, we need to ask the question. Pitom and Ramses, according to the Egyptian names, means that they are beautiful cities. But the words Aramis cannot implies that they are poverty and destitute. Because the word misken in Hebrew means somebody who's poor. And also they imply a language of danger. Because in Hebrew, sakana is danger. So he's looking at those words. So he's saying that on the one hand, they're beautiful cities. Because the words pitom and ramses means that they're beautiful. But on the other hand, the, the adjective that they're given in, in, in the Hebrew, it means that they, they implies poverty. Secondly, we need to ask the question concerning what Abraham Avinu asked God in Genesis chapter 15. So again, we need to take our Bibles and Tanakh and we go to Genesis chapter 15. And it goes like this. After these things, the word of God came to Abraham in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield. Your reward is very great. And Abraham said, O my Lord God, what will you give me? But I am childless. And the master of my house, you know, the one who runs my house, is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, you have not given me a seed. And the one who runs my household, he will inherit me. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, This one will not inherit you, but what comes forth from your loins, who will inherit you? He will inherit you. 
And he took him outside and he said, look now to the heavens and count the stars, if you can count them. And he said to him, thus shall be your seed. And he believed in God and it was considered for him a righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from all custom to give to you this land for a inheritance. And he said, O Lord God, but how shall I know that I will be able to pass it on? How shall I know that I'll be able, like you, Rashena, how do you know that I'll be able to pass it on? That's his question. And he said to him, Take for me a calf, a three-year-old calf, and a three-year-old goat, and a three-year-old ram, and a dove, and a pigeon. We don't know what any of this means. And he took from him all these, and he divided them in two, and he put one half over against the other, but the bird he did not divide. And the uh, uh, vulture came down on the carcasses, and Abraham sat with them. And the sun was coming to set, and a deep sleep fell upon Abraham. And behold, dread and great darkness was falling on him. And he said to Abraham, You shall surely know that your seed will be a stranger in a land which is not theirs, and they will serve them and inflict them for four hundred years. But also this nation which they will serve, I will judge, and after that they will come out with great substance. Okay. So if we go back now to Rabbi Ashlag's writings, he says we need to understand the question that Abraham Avinu asked God when he said, how do I know that I'll be able to pass it on? And what God answered him, God said to him, you shall surely know that your seed will be a stranger in a land which is not theirs and they will serve them and inflict them for 400 years. According to this, literally, it is very difficult to understand that since Abraham was asking a question, how he could be sure that he'll be able to pass on the land to his children, there does not seem to be any security at all in the answer that God gave him. What? That your seed will be in exile? What sort of an answer is that? But it does seem that this answer satisfied him. Because we see that when Abraham wasn't happy with an answer of God's, he had a long argument with him. For example, with the um, situation with the men of Sodom. When God said he was going to destroy Sodom, each time he said, well, maybe if there's 50 righteous, maybe if there's 45 righteous, and so on. But here... When God said to him, your seed will be in exile, he received this as a completely satisfactory answer. And he didn't have any argument with him to say maybe this or maybe that. But he received God's answer as a surety on the, on the fact that on the, on the inheritance of the land. And so we do need to understand what sort of an answer was this. Okay. Thirdly, we need to understand what this Zohar explains on the scripture and Pharaoh brought near. Now, this is in Exodus chapter 14, verse 10. 
Now, if we look here, and I've never ever noticed this before, so I really have to thank Rabbi Eshlag very much indeed. Um, I mean, it's been there all the time, but I never saw it kind of thing. If we look on um, Exodus chapter 10, no, sorry, I'm so sorry, chapter 14, verse 10, I'll tell you what it says. Right. This is the bit where the children of Israel have left Egypt. They left in the middle of the night and they're going in the wilderness and God tells them to go and encamp before Pihachirot between Migdol and the sea. Okay. And then Pharaoh says, oh, they've all got entangled in the wilderness. And, and God hardens the heart of Pharaoh and he's chasing after them. Okay. And God does it on purpose and I will strengthen the heart of Pharaoh and he will pursue after them and I will make Pharaoh heavy and all his hosts so Egypt will know that I am the Lord okay and then what happens and um, he pursued the children of Israel and then Egyptians pursued after them and overtook them encamped on by the sea all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh his horsemen and his host on by Pihachirot before Baltzfon. And the next thing it says, it says, and Pharaoh, when normally translated as drew near. But the word isn't drawn near, in fact, when you look there, it's hikriv. Hikriv is to bring others near. And so the the uh, uh, Zohar asks a question why does it say that why does it say that Pharaoh brought near so Rashi says brought his host near but the Zohar goes deeper and he says brought Israel near to God because they and then they lifted up their eyes and here was Egypt, the Egyptians chasing after them and they were very frightened and they cried out to, the children of Israel cried out to God. So the presence of Pharaoh brought them near to God by because he turned their hearts to God to Tshuva. Okay. So Rabbi Ashlag asks this and he says, the, the Zohar tells us that Pharaoh brought the children of Israel close to Tshuva but is it possible that the wicked Pharaoh would want to bring them close to Tshuva? He goes on to say, in order to understand all these questions, we need to understand an article which appears in the Gomorrah. And it's actually talking about the end of days. It's a verse in Zechariah, um, and I looked it up, it's verse Zechariah verse 12, chapter 12, verse 12. And it says there, in the end of days, the earth will give a eulogy. Like, you know, like you do when somebody dies, you give a eulogy. And in the Gemara, there's this whole discussion about what eulogy are they giving at the end of days? You know, the Gemara Tikkun, the, 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 the redemption. What eulogy are they giving? And um, one rabbi says it's the eulogy for um, Mashiach ben Yosef because there's a tradition that he will be killed at the time of the Gemati Kun. And there's another tradition which said the Yetzirah, 
the, the will to see for itself alone will be nullified at the Gemara Tikkun, which is what we've been learning the whole time with Rabbi Ashlag, that we have to do the work to transform the Yetzirah. And at the, at, when it reaches the Gemara Tikkun, then the Yetzirah will be nullified in, in the sense that it will be transformed. Okay? And so then the earth gives a eulogy. But... Um, this is what Rabbi Yehuda in the Gemara says. Rabbi Yehuda explains, in the future to come, the Holy Blessed One will bring the Yetzirah and kill it in front of the Tzadikim and in front of the wicked. To the Tzadikim, it appears to them like a huge mountain. But to the wicked, it appears to them just like a hair's breadth. These are crying and these are crying. Like both groups are crying. The Tzadikim are crying and saying, how was it possible for us that we were able to overcome such a high, huge mountain? And the wicked were crying and saying, how wasn't it possible for us to overcome only this tiny little hair's breadth? How was it we never managed it? This discussion in the Gemara says Rabbi Ashlag, is problematic. If the Yetzirah is already being killed, in other words, nullified, why are there still wicked people? Secondly, why are the Tzadikim crying? On the contrary, they should be, you know, very happy indeed. And thirdly, and I think most poignantly, how can there be two possible opinions on this? when we can now see the truth. Because in the future to come at the Gamaratikun, the world the world will be in truth. And, and what things are really like, will be, everybody will be able to see. So how can we be two possible views on what the will to receive looks like, either a tiny thing like a hair's breadth, or a huge mountain? And he explains this in what the sages said. In the Gemara, a bit further, a few lines further on, Rabbi Yassi said, the Yetzirah at the beginning seems like just a little spider's web. little web, you know, thread on a spider's web. But at the end, it seems like huge ropes of a cart, you know, huge ropes which bind us. As to said, woe to those who draw iniquity with threads, negligible threads but sin with cords of a cart and that's from Isaiah now all this we're going to discuss now what on earth he's talking about it's given us lots and lots and lots of different ideas from different places okay and he's pointing out the difficulties in all these different ideas but I mean when I first read this my mind was in quite a whirl from all these different ideas. What, what what has one idea got to do with another here? And now he's going to put it all together. We need to know a great principle, that the work that is given to us to do is on the basis of faith, which is above experience. And this is not because we're not fitting for a high level, and only because we're not fitting is it given to us to do everything in the vessel of faith. 
which seems to us like a very lowly vessel and a very unworthy vessel. And a person longs for when will I be able to actually understand what I'm doing? When will I be able to actually experience the light of God? When will I be able to get rid of the yoke, which we call faith, and be able to do things from knowledge? But the truth is that faith is a very great and exceedingly important stage which has an infinite importance to it. There is no end to its exaltation. And the only reason that it appears to us as being so lowly is because of our will to receive within us. In our will to receive, you've got two aspects. You've got the head, well, more than that, but you can discern two aspects. You've got the head aspect and the body aspect. The head aspect is designated as knowledge and the body aspect is the receiving aspect. And because of this, anything which opposes knowledge, you know, certain knowledge, experience, we feel that it is of very little value. Now, accordingly, we can explain what Abraham Avinu was asking God, how can I know that I will inherit it? After all, we know that he trusted God. God, I mean, he was a man who was a hundred years old, who hadn't got any children. His wife was over 90, okay? And God said to him, look up to the heavens and so will be your seed. And he believed him. We can know 100% sure that, that Abraham was not asking about did God really mean it? Okay, he wasn't asking that. He was asking something else. He was asking, actually, will my children want it? Will my children want Eretz Israel? And he's not talking about Eretz Israel in the physical, although that's also a part of the package. He's talking about Eretz Israel as uh, coming to it through giving, through faith. So he's not asking about the question is, will God give it to me? That we know he already trusts God. He's asking about, will they want to receive it? He says, because how is it possible that there is a reality that they will want or be able to receive upon themselves the yoke of faith? Because faith opposes knowledge. And who can go against knowledge? How will there be a reality that they will want the light of faith? And in fact, and this is crucial, because the whole perfection of coming to Eretz Israel depends only on that. And on this, God answered him, you shall surely know that they will be in exile. That is to say, he prepared a klipa, a shell, which is the worst aspect of the Yetzirah, which is Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. 
And the king of Egypt is actually represented within us. Okay, it's the inner Pharaoh. And the letters Pharaoh in Hebrew, Pei, Resh, Ayin, Hei, are the same letters, Oref, neck. Ayin, Vav, Resh, Pei. The back of the neck is called the Oref. Okay. And this is from the Kavanot of the Ari on Pesach. And the word Mitzrayim, Mitzarim, refers to the narrow place of the neck. You know, like where you've got the vocal cords, which are very narrow and keep closing and opening to let the air through. So it's a very narrow place. Okay. And this is the Klippa, which is in the area of the throat and the neck. And it provides a block which sucks the light, which comes down from the head aspect, from the potential aspect of the thought aspect to the body aspect, which is the carrying out in practice aspect. In other words, the aspect of Pharaoh within us sucks the light, which comes down from the idea of doing good to the bringing it out in practice with the question of Pharaoh, who is God that I should listen to his voice? Okay, so it's the inner Pharaoh we're talking about. And the aspect of the inner Pharaoh is like when you get an idea that you want to do something in holiness, okay? And you think, well, it's not so important. Oh, well, I've got something else to do. Or it's actually the Pharaoh in disguise within us. And that actually is the question, who is God, that I should listen to his voice? In other words, we're saying that um, God is not so important. We've got the Pharaoh in Egypt, but there's also the inner Pharaoh. Okay, because everything that's outside is also inside. So Pharaoh is represented within us. The Kippah of Pharaoh is like when we have a good idea that we want to um, get up and study or we want to do something in, in holiness, whatever we want to do, whatever it is, whatever the idea is, we get the idea, we get the light of the idea, we see the possibilities inherent in this idea to bring us closer to holiness. And then we get all these buts and <coughs> ifs and whys and shoulds and the idea just doesn't come through into, into fruition. And okay. if we were to actually look inside that ifs and buts and whys and what's all that stopping us, we can see that it's actually the fact that we're not considering God as that important. We're not putting God first. And that's the issue of Pharaoh. Because Pharaoh said, who is God that I should listen to his voice? That's in uh, Exodus chapter 5. Verse 2, that was actually in Pharaoh's own language. And that's within us that we, 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 we have this, why should I? What will I gain from it? Who is God that I should listen to his words? Why should I do things from, from just from faith? We all have that inner dialogue with ourselves. Okay? And we have to understand that, that those questions are coming from the Pharaoh within us. They're not coming from a good part. They're actually coming from the, the stop within us, which actually wants to stop us coming to holiness. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. 
And actually, this inner question, he says, when it arises, already takes us into the dominion of the kipot. As the Rambam said in the um, laws on idol worship, concerning the uh, um, mitzvah, do not turn to gods, to, uh, to other gods, in Leviticus chapter 19, he says, Eve, just the turning alone, with just the question alone, already means that we are transgressing a negative commandment. Um, and this occurs because the Sitra Achra, the, the other side, the evil side, wants to grab that light from the holiness. So he does so what does he do that is able to take light from the holiness? And this is what the scripture tells us. And Pharaoh brought them near. And the Holy Zohar explained that he brought them near to tshuva, to repentance. And we asked, how is it possible to say that the wicked Pharaoh brought them near to tshuva? After all, the usual way of the kipot is to drive a person far away from God, not close to God. And this we can understand in what is written in the Zohar about the nature of this worst of, of the eights of the, of the wills to receive. He says, the, well, well, this will to receive is like a snake, okay? Which, and he gives two examples. One is in which the snake bites a person and he, and sort of like puts his head right into the body and therefore it's impossible to kill the snake. The other one, he says, is when the snake, and this is easier for me to understand, the other one is in Zohar Bamidba, where the snake bends its head but kills with its tail. That is, sometimes it allows a person to accept upon himself the yoke of faith, which is above knowledge, and that is like the snake's bent its head, but in its end, it takes all that he does in holiness and grabs it for himself. In other words, he allows the person first to take upon himself the, the, the faith in order that in the, that it won't come to fruition, he's going to grab it and he's going to take it all to himself because this Klippa knows that the only real place to receive light is through holiness. When a person thinks that the only place to receive light is through, is through materialism, he's, he's really an off the mark completely. The real place to receive light is in holiness. And so the Sitra Achwa is actually his most powerful, actually, when a person is trying to be holy. And that is Pharaoh. That's why Pharaoh is the archetype of the will to receive oneself alone. That's why Pharaoh is the archetype of, of all the enemies. It's the, and the exile of, of Egypt is the archetype of all the exiles. And that's why they say that the exile of Egypt was the spiritual exile, because what, where the Pharaoh is, the, the, our inner Pharaoh and the external Pharaoh was, it was trying to grab the light, was not in the physical. It was in the spiritual realm.
Okay. And this is what the explanation that Pharaoh brought them near. They explained that Pharaoh brought Israel close to Tshuva and this was on purpose in order that he would grab everything for his own use. And this is what the Ari, Zichronoli Vracha, wrote, that Pharaoh took all the light that was coming down to the lower ones and he would take it from the aspect of the neck and from the throat, okay, and he would take it all into his own domain. And we can also see that for ourselves. We get the idea of holiness. We get the want to do holiness. We get the desire for holiness. And then bringing it through into practice, we, we, we come across all the, all the blockages. Okay? And the inner blockage is not putting God first. And that's Pharaoh. And now this is the explanation of, and he built the, the, the cities which we said was very difficult to translate and what they imply is is all that the children of Israel served during the time of the exile Pharaoh took for his own dominion the people of Israel were left poor and destitute miskanot can also be from the language of danger that they were in great danger, that they should not stay in such a situation all the days of their lives. As regards Pharaoh, however, their work was Pit-Om and Ramses. They were beautiful, very beautiful cities indeed. Therefore, the explanation of he built these Aray Miskanot, these cities of Miskanot, were for Israel, they were miskanot for Israel. They were cities of poverty and destitution for Israel. But beautiful cities, Pitom and Ramses, um, in relationship to Pharaoh, since everything that the children of Israel was doing kept falling into the klipot. And they couldn't see any blessing on the work of their hands. And only when they were able to persevere in the work of faith and the work of giving, then they saw fertility and they multiplied. But the moment they fell again into knowledge and receiving, then they were back in the domain of the Klippa of Pharaoh. Until they came to a clear and complete, certain decision that all their work needs to be in the aspect of faith, which is above knowledge, in the aspect of giving, in the way that God had taught their forefathers then they came to that, then they wanted to get out. But they then saw that they couldn't get out on their own. On their own, they could not, they did not have the strength to get out from the dominion of Pharaoh. And thus is written, and the children of Israel sighed from the work. They were afraid they would stay in this exile forever. And then their cry went up to God and they merited to get out of the exile of Egypt. And this is a message for us also that how very often we've come across circumstances ourselves where we're trying to get out of a will to receive for ourselves alone which we've got stuck in. And we try this and we try that and we try the other and whatever way we try we just 
don't seem to be able to do it. And the, we have to come and we fall, we, we, we try and we sometimes succeed a bit and then we fall back again and we, we go on this whole um, roller coaster of ups and downs, ups and downs, ups and downs, until we come to an absolutely firm and clear decision that we really don't want to fall into the hands of this pharaoh, our inner pharaoh, any longer. And then we try to get out, we can't. And the only thing left to us is prayer. And when we give a prayer like that, which comes from the depth of the heart, which Rabbi Ashley calls me Omka Deliba, then the prayer goes up and God helps us. And we have to believe that, that God helps us and God brings us to the redemption and that we are redeemed every single day. And that's why it's so important for us, the remembrance of the, of the um, redemption out of Egypt, the coming out of Egypt, is something that we remember, not just on Pesach, but we remember every single day. And it says, All the days of your life. And it's not just and and it's not just the days and the the daytime days. It's also the nighttime, the nights as well. And in the pnimiot, in the inner meanings of the Haggadah, this is not just the times when things are good for us that we remember that we came out of Egypt and we and God rescues us, but it's in the times of the nights, which is why we recite the Haggadah at night, because night, spiritual night is when we're in the dark, it's when we're in the exile, when we're in our inner exile, when we can't find our faith, when we when God is hidden from us and all we've got is faith and all we've got is prayer. And it's in that time that we need to remember that God takes us out. And that's why it's important to remember the coming out of Egypt all the days of our lives, the days which is when God's shining for us and the nights when God is not shining for us. And that's why the importance of the of, of the of the coming out of Egypt is of central importance to us. And it, not just on Pesach, but every day of the year. We also mention it in Kiddush on Friday night. We mention it in Shema, in the third paragraph of the Shema, every single day. Okay. We find, I'm going on with Rav Ashlag, we find that until they could see their situation, that they were situated in the dominion of the Klippot, and it hurt them, and they were frightened they would stay there forever, until then, they didn't actually have the need for God to help them to reject the vessels of receiving until they felt the damage and the lack that there is in them that they interfere and disturb a person from clinging and being one with God until they felt that they simply like every other person value work in the aspect of knowledge and receiving until they actually felt for themselves how the, the, the Pharaoh, their inner Pharaoh, was who, who wants them only to receive everything for the sake of receiving, 
was interfering with them and how it and how it stopped them coming to Dvei Court. Until then, they felt that the emunah was an aspect of lowliness. Of yes, that the, the of emunah of faith was was something you know not valued, not valuable at all. And therefore, the exile was prepared for them so that they should feel that they don't have any way of coming closer to God and that all their work was sunk in the Klippah of Egypt. And then they saw that they have no choice other than to receive upon themselves the work of coming to God through faith above knowledge and to yearn for the aspect of giving. Because if they don't do that, they would simply be stuck in the dominion of the Sitra Achra. And thus we see why Abraham's was completely satisfied with the answer that God gave him. Because God showed him that the children of Israel would come through this exile to value faith. And to value giving. And it's both, of course, the physical exile of Egypt and the equivalent inner exile of the inner Egypt. At this point, we find that the faith that they received upon themselves was because that they saw they had no other choice and no other way out. And because of this, they agreed to work through this aspect of faith, even though they would have preferred if they could have actually seen God, experienced God. This type of work is called work which is conditional because the only reason they don't fall into the klipot is because they took on this work. But if um, the klipot were nullified, then they wouldn't want to work like this. They would prefer to see, you know, to actually experience God. And now we can understand what the sages have said in the Gomorrah. The Yetzirah at the beginning seems like a, just a spider's web. and then the, But in the end, it appears like big cords of a, of, a, of a cart. We know that there are different levels in which a person feels his will to receive. First, he feels it as honest like that means he's compelled second shogeg which is, is that he, he he he's doing it by accident and third that he's uh, uh, the arrogance an arrogant act the will to receive which is in, in embedded in a person by his nature is the aspect of compelled because he does not have it in his power to nullify it at this stage, it is not considered for him a sin, but something which is more in the in the um, the, uh, um, the word is avon, which is usually translated as iniquity. But Rav Ashtag says it's more accurate to consider it as a ivut, which is distortion. It distorts a person's reality. It's absolutely brilliant. And. This is what Isaiah said, woe to those who draw to themselves this distortion with these negligible threads. Because they seem negligible to him, 
he can't push them away or hate them. Because a person does not feel at this stage that the will to receive himself alone is a sin. But what follows from afterwards is then you have the, the cords of the cart, the ropes of the cart, of the, which are the sin. The will to receive, this will to receive, which starts off as so tiny and so negligible, creates subsequently a shell, which is a whole framework in the inner meaning of God created two frameworks, one opposite to the other. And then this tie, these tiny threads weave into great big cords. And when they're in these great big cords, a person can suddenly begin to see where where he's ended up, what you know, that he's really in trouble, and he sees it as a sin. And now he knows to keep himself, even from these if he traces it back, he can look and see these tiny threads where it all began. And then they understand that there's no other choice to come into holiness except to come in through faith and not get involved with the will to receive, not even in these tiny bits. Otherwise, they're simply going to fall under the domination of the Klippah of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. We find that the purpose of the exile is that they can feel the will to receive is a sin and that this is the reason they decide that there is no other choice except to try to come to the vessels of giving and this is what the holy blessed one said to abraham our father on the question concerning the security of the inheritance of the land you shall surely know that your seed will be a stranger in a land which is not theirs and they will inflict them and enslave them because it's through the exile that they come to the revelation that even these tiny threads which with which the will to receive starts off with actually brings them to, to a sin and only through the exile do they come to accept the true service and which will take them far from the sin and this is what the Gomorrah said. Rabbi Yehuda said, in the future, the death will be swallowed up forever. That is to say that the Holy Blessed One will kill the Yetzirah. But he only leaves from it only a, a tiny head's breadth, which is not felt as a sin at all. Because a head's breadth is something which you can't even see with your eye. And thus is left both wicked and righteous. But all want now, at the end of days, to cling to God. But the wicked did not correct their head's breadth from the time when their will to receive was in action, their Yetzirah was in action, because, because only then was there the ability to feel it as a sin. Whereas now that the Yetzirah is only left as a hair's breadth, they've got no reason that they will need to transform their vessels of receiving into vessels of giving because they can't feel the, the, the hair's breadth as a sin. On the other hand, 
They can't completely cling to God either because there is this slight change of form. Their tikkun is that they should be of use to the tzaddikim. The point is that since their will to receive has been nullified, we find that the tzaddikim also don't have a reason now to go in the way of faith above knowledge. Because prior to this, they went in the way of faith above knowledge because they saw there was no other way to get come to holiness. But now, when they see that the wicked are left with this uh, hair's breadth of will to receive, which they didn't manage to let, uh, rectify at the time when the Yetzirah was active, because at that time it wasn't revealed to them that it's actually a sin. Therefore, now it's not recognisable as a sin, only as a head's breadth. Therefore, if there is no reason, they can't, they can't, the wicked can't correct it. On the other hand, they're not yet in Devekut either because the change of form, even of this head's breadth, is still present. The only tikkun that they have is that the tzaddikim can use them. Because now the tzaddikim see that there's no fear because of the klipot, because the Yetzirah has now been nullified. So why should they choose to work still in the way of faith above knowledge? But when they see that the wicked cannot now come to Dvekut, because they don't have a reason to now, because the Yetzirah is not recognisable for them as a sin. When the Sadikim see this, they see how good it was for them that they did have a good reason to come to work in the way of faith and of giving. At the time, it seemed to them that they were only working through faith because of the will to receive. But now they see that the, that they were able to see the sin was for their benefit. In fact, now they see that the work of faith was in fact the chief way, not because of the fear that they'd fall into the network of the clipot, but because this way really is the best way, even when there are no klipot present. And this is what they gain. This is In this way, the, the wicked to serve the tzaddikim, and the wicked can also, therefore, come to their tikkun. And this is the matter of both these are crying and these are crying. Crying is from the aspect of the past. Okay, in the present there is joy because the present is the Gemara Tikkun, but they're looking at the at the past. The 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 tzaddikim cry when they see how could we have conquered such a huge mountain? Because when they see what there was before the Etzarah was 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 nullified, they saw how great its governance on them really was. And they see how great God's mercies was. 
that he gave them the strength to overcome their will to receive themselves alone. And now they can see that in the present they have joy and gladness from the miracle that they had. But the wicked cry, because now they see that they can't quite come to, to on their own account, to cleave to God. Even though they see that it's only by a tiny hair's breadth. But now that there is no will to receive for themselves alone, they can't transform the vessels of receiving to giving. They only see that they're outside the, the whole situation, so they're crying. But they, their tikkun now becomes that they become of use to the tzaddikim. Uh, are we? Because now the tzaddikim, through the experience of the, of the wicked, can now see that the way of faith is in fact the true vessel and that it's not just we, we go the way of faith because we haven't yet come to God's manifestation, but that the way of faith is the most wonderful way. Okay, and this we can only see at the Gemara Tikkun, but when we compare the experience of the righteous with that of the wicked. And then fact that it's only through the way of faith that one can merit to Dvekut with God. And then Rabbi, Ashrag, Rabbi Boch Ashrag added, I heard on, on another occasion that why we actually need the way of faith is because of the pride that we have within us, which makes it so hard for us to accept faith. But the truth of the matter is, is faith is the most high and most wonderful stage of holiness. And the lower being, the created being, cannot attain or understand its incredible value and extreme exaltedness. And this is because of the pride that we have in us, which actually is a manifestation of our will to receive. And this, this is the reason why faith, the way of faith appears to us to be lowly and not, not negligible. And this is why was prepared for us the Pharaoh within us to cause us to sin until we see that at the time that we don't want to receive it through faith, we simply fall again and again from our level. Each time, each time we go up and we go down until it's fixed in our hearts that we have no other counsel except to fix the way of faith. And all this is in order to receive faith. And this is the inner meaning of, and he built the cities of Miskanot for Israel. Wow, that's it. Take a day, take a breath. <laughs> that was not amazing. Amazing, isn't it? Oh my gosh. Very uh, heavy stuff. It's amazing. If we heard that every day of our lives, the rest of our lives, 
it wouldn't be too many times. Yeah, and it would mean something different every day. It's so true. Certainly every Pesach. Yeah, that's, yeah. I feel for me it's one of the most life-changing articles I've ever read Um, because it explains myself to me, Mm -hmm. explains my own difficulties Mm -hmm. with faith, explains why I I can be attracted to ideas of mitzvot and faith and find them so difficult to carry out in practice. Mm -hmm. It explains to me these blockages Mm-hmm. Um, and to actually understand that these blockages are actually the pharaoh I mean the pharaoh was the blasphemer wasn't he, he was the arch blasphemer mm-hmm. yes and, and and so actually it's it's it's, it's these act, you know listening to the pharaoh within me is is, is actually kfira, is actually you know blaspheming is actually you know being is getting into heresy and actually to really realize that um, was a total eye-opener to me. Total eye-opener. Mm-hmm. And also I feel, I feel this whole idea of the sin starting off with just a, you know, a tiny little thread and then mm-hmm. ending up as a wacky great big thing. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, we all know that one. Mm-hmm. Yes. But, you know, we, we fall into things and so on. And also... This process of um, ups and downs that we we it is a process. It's not something we can just decide to do. Okay, I'm going to throw Pharaoh out the window, and that'll be the end of him. It's not like that. Mm-hmm. It's not like that. In fact, the more we try to tussle with the Pharaoh within us, the more we discover, as as the children of Israel did in Egypt, that we simply can't. And then we've got to cry out to God. And this is what also how important prayer is. How very important prayer is. Well, I... This audio recording is brought to you from Nahorah School, established by Yadida Cohen for the study of the Kabbalah as taught by Rabbi Yehudalev Ashlag. Studies with Yadida Cohen are available through the Nahorah School online. Details at www.nahorahschool.com or www.nahorahpress.com.